Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. We're on three different platforms, two of them on Facebook and one of them on YouTube. If you have a question, just write the word question in front of your question, write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and we will cover them hopefully in the order that they come in. Our first question is from a discussion that we had a while back where we had a question about the woman who rides the beast. And I remembered that there were four theories on this and I wanted to refresh myself on them before I really stated what I believed. And we had a lot of talk about whether or not the Catholic Church was this woman who rides the beast. So the first thing that I want to do is read the passage. And this comes to us out of Revelation chapter 17. Uh, the scarlet woman who um, the scarlet woman and the scarlet beast. The scarlet beast is the Antichrist. And that becomes evident as you make your way through here. The Scarlet Woman is a commercial and a religious organization. And again, there's no doubt about that. Once you read through here, you see it. It is also a commercial and a religious organization in the last seven year period. So anything that's going on in churches today would, would Maybe it connects because real believers are taken out, but some people have claimed that the Catholic Church is the harlot that rides the beast. And maybe once the rapture of the church happens and we're in the tribulation period, then that might be true, but we'll at least part of it. Uh, but it can't be all of it, by the way, and, and we'll see that. So let's start by reading it. So this is verse one of, of Revelation chapter 17. Good to see you guys popping on here. Uh, it says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven hands, heads and 10 horns. So this is not just the antichrist, this is the last world system. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of the different kingdoms and he was the head and he went all the way down to the toes and there were 10 toes and those 10 toes represented 10 countries. And here we see 10 horns, or yeah, 10, uh, the world broken up into 10 different um, areas with 10 kings. And here we find the 10 horns, horns represent power in the Bible. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and ordained excuse me, and um, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hair, her hand, a golden cup full of the abominations, the filthiness of her fornication, and on her forehead was written, Mystery Babylon the Great. No wonder there's so much confusion about it. She is a mystery. And when you try to be dogmatic about mysteries, you run into problems. Uh, and when you have a mystery, you can take your pet peeve or something that you want to fit into it and you can fit it into there. So we want to be careful that we don't do that because our desire is to rightly divide the Word of God. If you don't want to use the Bible in any way to try to make your point when it isn't clearly making it. So Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So when we look into history and we see where real Christians have been martyred or we look into the tribulation period when, remember this, Re Revelation 17 is the end, near the end of the tribulation period, then we see that Christians are persecuted by this um, mystery system. It says, so she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which is the seven heads and the 10 horns. The beast which you saw and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. This is the, the system of the Antichrist, whose names are written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. 
when they say the beast, when they see the beast, which is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sets. And for that reason, because Rome in the ancient world was called the city of seven hills, and Israel sets on seven hills, some people believe it's Israel and some people believe that it's the Catholic Church or Rome or, yeah, or Rome and the emperors. So, as again, there's these different views. So, verse 10 says, there are also seven kings, five have fallen and one is and one is not yet. This is probably the five empires that dominated the world before the time of John. You have um, Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Greece, which are the five, and then you've got Rome that is, and then you've got the, the reuniting of the Roman Empire that is yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself the eighth and is the seventh is going to perdition. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings, have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for an hour as the kings, uh, kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war with the lamb, and with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, these waters which you saw, the harlot set on, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So now the ten kings from the Antichrist system, the last world power, turn on the harlot, this religious and commercial system, and kill her. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill this purpose and be of one mind and give the kingdom of the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman whom you saw is the great city which shall reign over the kings of the earth. Now notice that term, the woman which you saw is the great city which will reign over the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, I could go on into chapter eight where we have the destruction and the merchants that have been made rich around the world and they mourn over the death of mystery Babylon. So this is how we know it's a commercial system as well. So after reading that, let me go ahead and give you these four different views. I'm going to sum them up. Uh, the first one is that it is a literal rebuilding of Babylon. Some of the reasons that they believe this is true is because some believe the Antichrist to be Islam or Muslim. Some believe that the, the blood and the martyrs of the saints is the jihad that is taught in the Quran. And they make those connections. And they look around the world today and see that a lot of the nations in Ezekiel 38 are that hate Israel are Islam. And so they believe that somehow during the tribulation period or slightly before it, the city of Babylon in Iraq will literally be rebuilt and the entire world will become rich from her. Now some, and this may be the most popular view over the last, say, I don't know, 40 years, 40 or 50 years, believe that this is the Catholic Church. And I would have an exception with that. I would, I would want an exception with it. And that would be, it's the Catholic Church minus any real saints. Remember, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that the Catholic Church believes that are wrong. And we know that. The um, Pope Francis today believes in universalism. He believes that everybody is going to be saved. But we also know that they believe the fundamentals of the gospel. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he was born of a virgin. They believe in um, that he died on the cross for our sins. Now, they may add some things, but we, I think we could all agree that there are Catholics who have committed their lives to Christ. And when the rapture happens, they will be gone. And what will be left will be the ungodly portion of the Catholic Church. So I think that's possible, but it's not right to call it the Catholic Church today. What it will be when all real Christians are taken out of it, and maybe even it's the world system of religion. Maybe not just Catholicism, but maybe Orthodox and Anglican and non-denominational and, and, and uh, Protestant 
and Pentecostal, uh, uh, everyone who was left behind who becomes part of this system. There's a lot in wealth that can draw people into it. Um, some also believe that it is the nation of Israel, that Israel itself is um, is this mystery, um, this mystery um, harlot or the mystery Babylon. And the reason that they do that is because they believe in replacement theology. So when you talk to someone who believes in replacement theology, that is that God has replaced the nation of Israel with uh, the with the church, and then they believe that the rebirth of the nation of Israel is the great harlot. I, I obviously do not believe in this at all. God is using the nation of Israel again. God foretold that he was going to establish them. And I don't believe that it is the case at all. All right. So um, let me see if I got them all. So some believe that it is, is literal Babylon. Some believe it is the Catholic Church. Some believe that it is Israel. And um, I should have made notes. Um all right, so we'll, so we'll leave it there. So that kind of covers what it is. Oh, it, that's just a mystery. It's fourth. It's just a mystery, and we won't know until it actually is revealed that it's a new system that comes up under the Antichrist during the tribulation period, which could be very well it, um, and, and Babylon being rebuilt literally. All right, so um, thank you very much. That was a good discussion that we had a while back. I'm going to go ahead and go to the questions that we have brought in. It's good to see you guys jo uh, joining us. We have a question from Andre. Andre says, when Paul and Silas told the jailer in Acts 16.31, if he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he would be saved, including his household, did he mean his faith covered his household or each had to believe? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the when they said, believe you and your household, I think he says, believe and be baptized. So let's go there. Um, I think some of the, the best ways to look at things or to really get to the what's really being said is to actually go back and look at the passage in its context. And this helps us to be able to do that. So we are gonna go to verse uh, 31 and we're gonna take a look at this. All right, so here we go. I'm gonna go ahead and put it on the screen for you to be able to see. And we're gonna start in verse uh, 29. It says, then he, I gotta clear this out. Okay, there we go. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So they have to do, they have to do that themselves. If they are children, then there is an umbrella that they are under, or we could say, you know, you have that time of accountability. So if they're children, it's true. But if they're older adults' children, then they have to believe in order to be saved. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Well, they have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as well. There are no children in the kingdom of God. I know this has been used to talk about certain doctrines that our family will eventually be saved if we commit our lives to Christ. But we don't see that taught in scripture. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And they took him that same night and they washed their stripes and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. So they believed, they followed through and they were baptized. We're never told to baptize someone who is not a believer. So Andre, I think that these are, the family has believed. And if they are smaller children, then they would make that commitment themselves uh, to the Lord. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, it's good to see all you guys. So we have a question from Teva. And Teva says, question, does the Antichrist know he is the Antichrist or is he a person who truly thinks he is bringing peace? Um, these kind of questions, which are hypothetical, are kind of hard to answer. It seems that at some point he knows when you begin to look at, at what he does and what he says. It seems like at some point he knows. 
but whether he knows or when he actually knows, I don't know. Um, it's interesting when you think of the Antichrist, he's born as a baby, had to learn and grow. So there, there comes some point in his life where he realizes who he is. And this is a lot like Christ. The Antichrist can mean a, a, op, against Christ or opposite of Christ. Jesus was born as a baby and had to learn who he was. And Jesus had to at some point come to the point where he realized that he was the Christ. And when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, he, which is interesting that the temptation took place in the wilderness, but when he tempted him in the wilderness, he said to him, if you are the son of God. So by that time he had realized he was the son of God. So I think at some point he does, the, the Antichrist goes through that process and at some point realizes whom he is. Um, and I guess an argument could be made either way. And you know, as we make our way through scripture, we should be looking for things that might help us to really understand that as we get into um, uh, different points about the Antichrist. So thanks, Teva. Um, we do uh, one question um, per person. Uh, uh, Teva, I see you're probably here for the first time. Um, and you have a question about divorce, let's go ahead and bring that in. We'll make an exception here. We do one question per, just so we can give people a chance to be able to, uh, to answer their questions. Um, so Teva says, how does a woman biblically defend divorcing an emotionally or spiritually abusive husband? So in, in, in the law, because of the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts, not the hardness of the women, the, the men, of the uh, under the law could divorce their wives could give them a written letter of divorce and the bible tells us that that was never god's plan that god allowed it because of the hardness of their hearts and then jesus said that if a man divorces a woman and remarries another which was a common practice he is committing adultery unless it's because of sexual immorality so unless he put her away for sexual immorality and then she would be free and that could be vice versa and then in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about separation. He says, the Lord said that you shall not divorce, but I tell you, and he goes on to talk about if you separate, it's for reconciliation or to remain unmarried. And so this brings in what we would consider to be an exception. It also talks about believers. There's another exception there in Revelation 7. If the believer wants to stay, then stay married to him. If he wants to go, then you are not bound. You are free to let the non-believer go. But the exception for a divorce would be abuse. Um, I'm not quite sure what spiritual abuse would be, emotional abuse. Um, I, I know pastors can get, can get into spiritual abuse. I guess you can have a, a guy that is overbearing towards someone in a in a spiritual way um certainly physical abuse and there may need to be a time of separation and i think that through godly advice i could never tell you because i don't know the details we would have to sit down and talk for a while for me to be able to tell you what you should do so this is a hypothetical situation and I would say go get with a pastor, get with someone who's godly and talk to them and make a decision. I do think that emotional and spiritual abuse could be so bad that a woman would decide I'm separating from him. But you're to remain single and not to remarry or be reconciled to the marriage. So kind of like when there is church discipline, there is this allowance in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where you can separate but you have to remain single. And someone says, well, what if he has an affair? Well, then I guess what Jesus said comes into play. But I would be careful not to do something, he or she, it would be careful not to do something in order for that to happen. In other words, sometimes women will say, well, I know if I separate from my husband, he will have an affair on me and I'll be free. Yeah, I don't know that you should try to manipulate God. I think that's kind of a scary place to be in trying to manipulate God. Um, but this, again, is a hard question because there's so many different situations and you can't answer it across the board. You've got to sit down and talk to someone who you trust, um, 
an older woman who is who loves the Lord and is mature in Christ, a pastor, and find out more information. Maybe a biblical counselor that really is compassionate and cares and find out um, and get some direction and try to walk in wisdom when it comes to these things, all right? But I would never tell you to stay in an abusive relationship. If it is extreme emotional, or as you said, spiritual, which I would like to get a definition of that, and physical, you can leave, separate. It doesn't mean you'll separate forever, but you get some help and then see if whether or not there will be reconciliation. Uh, And the same is true with physical. If you're being physically abused, get out. Get out, get to a safe place, and then you can evaluate from a safe place if you should try to restore that relationship or if it is something that should not be done. Our next question comes from John P. John says, hi, Pastor Robert. I'd like to thank you and the other speakers and pastors for the conference this week. I'd also like to thank everyone who worked on the scenes. Our church has been blessed. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. Uh, It was a good conference and um, it was on prophecy and uh, had uh, Dr. Ed Henson was so good, Mark Mark Hitchcock, Skip Heitzig, uh, so many of the other speakers that we had just were so good in really clarifying a lot of issues. Um, So we have another question here about 1 Corinthians 7 and uh, this is from Light Skin Patriot and says, hello pastor. Could you clarify what's being said about children in 1 Corinthians 7, 14? Yeah, let me go ahead and get that up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. I think I know what passage you're talking about. All right, so let's go ahead and pull this up on the screen and we'll see if we can read through it. We might have to back it up a little bit to be able to get it all in context. Uh, Let's go back to verse 12. But to the rest, I not the Lord say. Paul isn't saying that this is not scripture. He's saying that he is the one who is telling you this. Jesus did not address other situations besides if there was sexual sin in a marriage. But to the rest, I say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother and sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. So if you are in the home with your children, you are, you are able to influence them. And you are, there's an umbrella of God's promises that are over your life that your children now get to partake in. If you separate and then your children start to live with the unbeliever, then no longer is that there that umbrella over them. And the word sanctified means to be set apart. So the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. Doesn't mean he's holy. Doesn't mean he has salvation. It means that he is set apart. So there's blessings that come from the believing wife to the unbelieving husband and vice versa. And the same with children. Now, when children are so small, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. Jesus said you have to become as a child to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then they're already going to heaven. But as they get older and get to the age of accountability, then they're also sanctified, set apart. And when they are unbelieving and living with an unbelieving husband, then they are no longer sanctified. And so that's what I believe that this is talking about. And um, so there is an encouragement, and this is why Paul is saying, if the non-believing husband wants to stay, let him stay. Or the non-believing wife wants to stay, then stay married to them because it allows there to be a sanctification, being set apart. Um, And then down where it says, the wife is sanctified by her husband, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And again, I think they're talking about, I think he's talking about spiritual. That's a difficult verse that has some different ideas uh, that go along with it. 
But thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Um, let's go ahead and get back here and we will take another question. So we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, will we rule and reign over Christians still in their physical bodies during the thousand year reign since they can still sin as well as, uns as unsaved? Is Gog a person? Does he come after the Antichrist? Um, Gog is a, a reference to a leader and there is the Gog and Magog war in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and that is before or right after the tribulation period begins. Then at the end of the millennial reign, there is another Gog that rises when Satan is released and gathers together people who are going to rebel under Christ who's been ruling with a rod of iron. Will Christians still uh, be in their physical bodies during the thousand year reign? Um, I, I don't know if you're talking about living or Christians that have been resurrected. Um, will we rule and reign over Christians still in their physical bodies during the thousand year reign since they can still sin as well as unsaved? Um, so you're asking whether or not, yeah, I think that we're going to rule with Christ in, in different parts of the world during the millennium period. And I think that we will rule and reign over those that are genuine, that are believers and over those who aren't. And we know that there are non-believers because when Satan is released, he's able to stir them up and cause rebellion once again, which may be one of the reasons that God allows Satan to be released is because it reveals that even if you are under the perfect rule of Christ, there is a rebelliousness of the man on the heart of man and they will rebel against him. So thank you, Jari, for your question. I appreciate that. We have another question here from Renee. Um, Renee says, question, is it the Ishmaelites that first came against God's people? And is it Satan that is using them to come against the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right, Renee, I'm not sure I understand your question. Maybe you can clarify this a little bit. Um, the Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael, who is the firstborn of Abraham, or the, the son of the bondwoman, not of Sarah, not the son of promise, which was Isaac, uh, that first came against God's people. Um, Abraham, God's people, the Ishmaelites. Um, I'm going to say, when you, when you think of, I'm going to say no. When you go back to the book of Genesis and you go to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you especially look at the struggles in the life of Jacob and then them being taken into Egypt, um, I'm not going to say they're, they're not the descendants of the Ishmaelites. Even though she was an Egyptian woman, Hagar, who had, who had Ishmael, the descendants of the Ishmael are considered to be the Arab peoples. But they were first under the bondage of the Egyptians in Egypt. So I'm going to say no to that. Is Satan using them to come against the Lord? Um, maybe today, remember the Persians are not Ishmaelites. Many of the Arab peoples are. Uh, and uh, descendants of Esau as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm not sure that we can categorize everybody into that category. I think there's different parts of the world that come against God's people and, and that hate Israel. And I think that the descendants of the Ishmaelites are indeed um, one of them. All right, uh, so I have a question here from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Psychman says, if someone is seeking to use their spiritual gift is in bigger ways, does it make sense that God might tell him not to despise the little things, but be happy where you are? Very much so. Not only do I believe that that is what God's trying to do, but I believe that that principle is a true principle. And by what I mean by that, that true principle is that God said, don't despise the days of small beginnings. And God may use someone in great ways. And God may use someone in great ways, but not by the world standards. 
so they may be during their lifetime minister to a small amount of people but in the kingdom of God it's great or maybe later on it will be recognized as being great after they've they've died like a painter who, whose paintings were never popular never got any, them any money they lived in poverty their whole lives but then all of a sudden when after they die their paintings become popular and sell for millions of dollars they never saw that so who knows what God's doing as you submit yourself to him and are used by him besides that we're not supposed to do anything through selfish ambition Philippians chapter 2 and that a, a man ought to not think more of himself than he ought to so we want to just do the work God's called us to do we want to faithfully do it if God gives us 10 talents five talents or one talent we want to faithfully do it I have said often I want all God has for me I don't want more than what God has for me I want to do what God's called me to do and I want to do it faithfully and I think that's what God asked me to do and we had days of small beginnings God says don't despise those days and I think that a lot of people do and they try really hard because of selfish ambition remember James and John wanted to be set at Jesus's right hand and left hand which is really amazing when you think about it because that's a position of authority they thought really highly of themselves to think that they were going to be able to rule and reign at Jesus's right hand and left hand now I don't know if they will or not but Jesus said that's for the father to decide and he rebuked them whoever wants to be great in the kingdom of God needs to learn how to be a servant to all and so serving people loving them in the name of Christ helping the least of these giving a glass of water to the thirsty helping the hungry humbly being used by God God says in James 4 that if you exalt yourself you'll be humbled if you humble yourself you'll be exalted and so this becomes a fine line and I can tell you that many Christians have not made good decisions along these lines um, many Christians have sought and I think maybe it's all of us that have a battle with it want people to think that we're more spiritual and we want to be used in greater ways so we are doing things out of selfish ambition I think as Christian leaders there's a real danger that any of us can get into this and it's something that we have to re-evaluate I know I'm constantly re-evaluating my life asking God to reveal to me are there things that I need to change are the things that that you want to work with me on and after 37 years of pastoring the church I'm pastoring after 40 years of being involved in ministry after 50 years of being a Christian I can tell you that there are still things that Christ convicts me on that I need to change and I wish it was never the selfish ambition question but it seems to be something that God comes back to regularly don't do anything through selfish ambition remember all that we're doing is going to be tested by fire and our motives are going to be revealed and so yeah we want to just do what God wants us to do and sometimes the people that are going to receive the greatest rewards are the ones that did it honestly from their hearts and they quietly served someone small never had any recognition in their lives Jesus said when people see what you're doing and they applaud you for it you've received your reward you, you got your reward and, and the more well-known you are maybe the more that's true and what you do humbly where no one can see behind the scenes are what we get our real reward for something that no one can applaud and take away your reward from Christ so the days of small beginnings are really important and I, I think for a reason I think God doesn't you know we started with six people in a hotel room and then throughout the years like I said we're in 37 years as a church now we started in 1985 we've had a lot of problems and we've had people that have been trouble within the church and I think that God allows that because God wants you to be humble and God if, if we never had struggles if we never had difficulties if no one ever told us that we were wrong or or, or horrible or doing things then we would be prideful but God allows us to be humbled because God knows that's the best thing for us and the Bible says humble yourself in the sight of the Lord 
So I always encourage people to pray, Lord, show me how to humble myself rather than I need to humble myself or, or rather than God humble me because <laughs> I want to be able to, to humble myself before God and God will exalt me. But if you exalt yourself, then God will humble you. And this happens within ministry because people look up to those who are involved in ministry. So um, yeah, I think that God will tells us not to despise the days of small things and maybe even allows those days to hang around for a while because we need it and we won't get too puffed up and our heads will be able to still fit through the doors. All right, thanks psych man. I appreciate your question. It's good to have you guys here with us today. Uh, and we have another question here. Um, yeah, let's, um, yeah, okay, let's bring in this question here by um, Abafor. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. On marijuana, is it okay to smoke it to relax? Uh, does, uh, due to it's made as a plant by God, always an argument with younger people. So I think that when it comes to marijuana, which is being legalized around the world, the question that you've got to ask is, are you doing it like you would use alcohol to be drunk? And just because, just because God made it doesn't mean it's meant for us to use. God made arsenic as well. And God made other things that might not be good for you, but it might help you if you have a disease. And so God has plants that will help you, but they have side effects as well. And I think that this is going to become more and more of an issue within the church. And you've also got the question of medical use. If someone's in a lot of pain, if they're in, in if, if they are on chemotherapy and if taking THC helps them to be able to increase their appetite so that they can eat more or stop nausea, then is it okay for them to take? I think these are questions that we need to ask with and that the church is going to have to really wrestle with as time goes on and more and more states make it legal. But the real question for us is, we don't wanna do, any, we don't wanna do anything to get drunk. We don't wanna do anything that's gonna put us in a state that would be equal to that. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. So uh, we have another question here from, uh, looks like uh, from YouTube. Uh, please stop judging people. It's good to see you again. Please stop judging people. Blessings, Pastor. Um, are all your questions and answers from the Bible or are some answers from your wisdom and what God reveals? Do you have a direct email or do people always get directed to Pastor Adam? All right, so um, let me see. Let me, let me answer the second one first. I do have an email. I do not answer all of them. I try to read all of them that come in and I'm not promising that I'll answer. It's just way too many. And I, and I tell people very carefully um, that if you're gonna send me an email, I might not answer it. I might, I might not. Uh, I, again, I get a lot and it's robert at calvarytucson.com. And so you can send me an email there. Um, no, sometimes the answers, I'm trying, I, I'm, I'm trying to be as biblical as I can. I wanna, we're on a truth quest. Our desire is to know what God's word says and what the truth is. But sometimes you have to look and say, the Bible says this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna rightly divide this the best I can. And over time, your wisdom learns how to do that better. Or with wisdom, you're able to rightly divide the word of God. Doesn't mean you always do it right. Doesn't mean that your opinions are always right. I try to answer things as biblical as I can, but sometimes you get questions that are just not addressed in the Bible. And you try to find something in the Bible that's close that you can connect it to. And um, I, yeah, I don't wanna just give, I don't wanna just give my opinions. I wanna give what the Bible says. That's what I wanna live. That's what we've been trusted in on. I think there are a lot of dangers when you're doing things just because the Bible may not address it and you're just giving opinions on it. Uh, it's better to stay true to what the Bible says. All right, so, but it doesn't mean that I won't give my opinion even in messages 
or in Q&As like this because sometimes I think that you have to. You're trying to rightly divide the word of truth, but I think sometimes you do come to a point where uh, you absolutely have, to, absolutely have to do that. All right, so we have a question from Ashley. Ashley Oliver says, question, in Revelation 4.4, are the 24 elders angelic beings or were they people on earth? Or is this, is this that something we find out when we get there? All right. Uh, probably ultimately we're going to find out when we get there. So there are a lot of people who believe a lot of different things. Uh, I look at the 24 elders as being the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 disciples. We know that the foundations around the New Jerusalem have the 12 disciples, that the foundation of the New Jerusalem has the 12 disciples' names on it. The question is, whose name is there instead of Judas, since Judas was a false believer, a false convert? Then who's his name replace? Uh, other people have suggested that these 24 elders are different people, different than the 12 apostles and the 12 disciples. The reason for that is because it doesn't say they are. And so we don't know for sure. And so ultimately it's something we'll find out when we get there. But that doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion and you don't believe that a certain thing may or may not be true. And that's what I believe about uh, these 24 elders. I think that's who they are. And they're elders because they were the elders in the Old and in the New Testament uh, during that time. All right, so thank you very much, Ashley, for your question. I appreciate that. All right, let's bring in this question here from Please Stop Judging People. Um, uh, Please Stop Judging People says, why does God allow trouble within the church? Does this not almost push people away? Not the true believers, but those who don't know God get scared of some people in church and the church. And I understand this. This is why nobody's perfect except Jesus. And we want to try to love one another and to let, <coughs> excuse me, let the fruit of um, the Spirit be demonstrated in our lives. And we don't want to have contentions and we want to be of one mind because they will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. In 2 Timothy, it says, The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, uh, correcting those that are in opposition. So you will have people who do things within the church that are wrong. That's why we've got to forgive those who trespass against us. And sometimes people do things in church that drive people away. And that is unfortunate. But you're dealing with people. And sometimes how it's represented is not always true. In other words, they, they may say that somebody treated them a certain way in a church and that person says, well, I don't go to church anymore because they treated me this way. Then when you find out more of the story, you find out that they really weren't treated that way. How do I know that? Because people have come to me and said, why did you do this to that person? More than one time. And I tell them, I promise you that I did not do that. The way they represented it was not correct. We have a tendency to believe whoever tells their story first and to believe when someone says something. And so, yeah, we need to, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to step on people's toes. Nobody is perfect. Uh, the church is maturing and you get carnal people who are in the church as well as spiritual people. You get people that are growing and maturing and need to learn how to handle things. So there are all kinds of things that happen that cause difficulties and problems within the church. And that's why we need to walk in love towards anyone who's out there who needs uh, to really hear Christ and to be forgiving and to let it go. And when someone says, I'm sorry to me, I let it go. I love when someone comes up to me and says, hey, do you remember, you know, I did this years ago and I don't even remember anymore. It's like they remind me of it. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot that. I love when that happens 
because it truly states that you are letting it go. You're saying, I am not going to hold them to account. We do a lot of things wrong. If we're honest, it would only be someone who's very spiritually proud who would say, I have this right standing in front of God and you don't. We all have difficulties. We all have problems. We all have things that need to be corrected. And um, I think, as I said, was saying for the sake of leaders, oftentimes God allows there to be difficulties in church because they need it. Years ago, I had gone to a pastor's conference called Preach the Word. Charles Swindoll was one of the speakers. He's one of the reasons that I went. And uh, it was Greg Laurie, Charles Swindoll, John MacArthur, um, Jack Graham, a great lineup of speakers. And, and Charles Swindoll did his message called Boars in God's Vineyard. And he went through his ministry and talked about the different kinds of problems that he had. And at one point he says, I wish I would have, I would have taken care of this guy, but to my shame, I left him for the next guy because in the system that he was in, they would move pastors along from church to church. Um, he now pastors, the church that he pastors now is one that he planted and that he still pastors in, even though I think he's close to 80 years old or maybe even 80 years old. But at the end of the study, he said, why does God allow boars in his vineyard? And then he looked out at us pastors and leaders who were at a preach the word conference and said, because you need it. You need there to be some difficulties. You need there to be some struggles. Tell me which one of the Old Testament saints didn't have difficulties and didn't have struggles. Paul had his fair share in the New Testament. And when we look at the different writers that are writing, they almost all talk about difficulties and struggles. This idea that we become Christians and hardships and difficulties melt away and everybody locks arms and sings Kumbaya is just not true. We need to be forgiving because we've been forgiven. We need to be kind and tenderhearted towards others. We need to be one accord. We need to let things go when we let them go. We need to deal with issues that need to be dealt with when they're hard and difficult issues. So I think that's why God allows trouble in the church. And I do think that some will be pushed away from that, but God knows what he's doing. He knows who he is taking care of. All right, so we have a follow-up from Jari. And if you have a question, then you can write the word question uh, in the comment section and then write your question out, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense. So question, follow-up to Gog and the Antichrist and false prophet being born in a similar way to Jesus Christ, since they are counterfeits and used by Satan to deceive. So. Yeah, is antichrist against or antichrist in place of, right? Anti, against or in place of. And so, yes, antichrist is a counterfeit, to be sure. And I think, I, I'm, I wouldn't so much say that the antichrist is born and then learns who he is and Jesus is born and learns who they are because he's the Christ and the antichrist. I would say it's more, that's human nature. People are born and then they grow and they mature they learn more about themselves as they do that. That's human nature. And I think that Jesus learned more about himself. And I think it's really wild when you think that he came to the point where all of a sudden he thought, I could be God. I think I might be God. And I think that's a pretty amazing um, revelation when you think about it. And that when he's reading, he knew a lot of Isaiah. He quoted Isaiah, he quoted Psalms a lot. Um, he saw the suffering servant in Isaiah. And so Jesus at some point began to realize who he was, but that's human nature, him going further and the antichrist going further because they're written about, they're written about in scripture where most of us aren't. I am very rarely is someone written about in history. And so we would not be coming uh, to that point where we would realize it. But I think, Jari, it's more like human nature. It has to do with human nature rather than, you know, something that was specifically for Christ and for others. All right. So I have a question here that is a question that was asked a while ago. And I want to go ahead and look at this. So this has to do with what are the 77s of Daniel in Daniel chapter 24 
verses 24 through 47. So let me go ahead and go there. I want to I want to read this passage because again, reading it in context helps us to really understand it, to really be able to grab it. So the passage starts in verse 24. And one thing to remember is that this has to do with let's see oh Daniel um Daniel 24 24 through 27, Daniel, I guess I wrote that out wrong, Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. All right, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So I'm going to take that down because that is wrong. So the question is, what are the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, 24, uh, 20 through whatever it is? Um, I want to go ahead and put this up on the screen for you so that you can read it here. It says, now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins of my people of Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord God for the holy mountain of God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel I have seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the same time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you skill and understanding at the beginning of your supplication the command went out and I have come to tell you for greatly you are greatly beloved therefore consider the mandarin and understand the vision so here's the vision that God gives to Daniel he started praying 21 days ago the answer left when he started praying this may be one of the reasons that we have to persevere then he says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city when you go back and look at why Daniel's praying He's praying because he realizes that God was going to have them in captivity for 70 years, according to Jeremiah. When you go back and read Jeremiah, it's because for 490 years, they haven't given the Sabbath rest to the land. They not only had a Sabbath week, but they had a Sabbath year. And they were supposed to let the land rest for one week or for one day, one year out of this week of years. So 490 years had passed. And now he shows up to him and the context of it is weeks of years. Someone said to me, you're just pushing it to make it say what you want it to say one time. But really we're not. When you go back and you look at the context of this, it's not weeks of days, it's weeks of years. And so he says 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for uh, iniquity, and bring everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's not just 70 weeks until the Messiah, but it's 70 weeks for everything to be wrapped up. God's going to work with Israel for 490 years and he's going to wrap everything up within 490 years of working with Israel. Then he says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The, when Nehemiah was given the command by King Artaxerxes to go back and build the walls of Jerusalem, the, the, the city and the walls, it took them 49 years to build it. They built the walls immediately, quickly, kind of make, in a makeshift way. And then it took them 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. So that would be the seven weeks that are spoken of here. Then the 62 weeks would be the history between the time the command went forward until the time that the Messiah showed up. So we read it again here. Uh, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 483 years. So if you go from the time that Nehemiah received the command from Artaxerxes and you add 483 years to it, you come to the life of Jesus. You actually come to the, the ministry of Jesus. Some have even brought it down to the day that he rode by a donkey into Jerusalem. I don't know that you need to go that far. That has caused a lot of criticism when someone brings something to that precise. But it is amazing that when you go from the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until 483 years later, 
that you come to Jesus, you come to the life of Jesus. It is absolutely amazing. Now, what happens then? It says the streets will be rebuilt and the walls even in troubles times. That happened during those first 49 years. And then it says, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So that's the finish of the 483 years is when Jesus came and died, right? And was cut off. And it says, um, but not for himself. And that's a prophecy. This is Daniel, which was written no doubt before the time of Christ and that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. That's a prophecy about the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. This is one of them. He was cut off from the land of the living, but not for himself. He gave his life as a sacrifice. And it says the people of the prince who is to come, that's Rome. The prince is the Antichrist who is going to come. And he's from Rome somehow. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with the flood. Uh, the Bible used the word flood to speak of war and that, that, that would come in like a flood. And that's exactly what happened. They besieged the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Messiah was cut off. And then the people of the prince destroyed the city. The end of it was with a flood. It says, until the end of the war. So there we get the idea that this flood is a war. Desolations are determined. So they were, they were desolate. And Israel became desolate for almost 2,000 years. And then it says, then he... This is the prince of the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offerings and on the wing of abominations shall make desolate. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, so it was in the future of Jesus that there would be this abomination and desolation. That's really important to understand. Because some try to say that Antichaeus Epiphanes, who, who the Maccabean revolt fought against him, is the fulfillment of that. But Jesus said there's a time coming that's worse than anything this world will ever see and anything that this world is ever going to see. And that time is still in the future for us. It goes on to say then, and on the wings of desolations, he uh, of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And so there's the, the last week, the 70th week of Daniel, seven years that is yet to be fulfilled. In Jeremiah 37, it says that the tribulation time is a great, a time of great trouble. It is a time of Jacob's trouble, but they will be saved out of it. So God is going to bring an end to all things within those 490 years. There was a gap after 383 years where the Messiah was cut off and would not be started again until there is a treaty with many which is the beginning of the tribulation period, which is the last seven years. And the time of the Gentiles is in between it. And there's two passages that tell us about this time of the Gentiles. You have, you, uh, you have Jesus saying, and Jerusalem shall be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And then you have Romans 11, 25 and 26, Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then they will all be saved. God is working with Israel once again in the midst of all of these things and I think that that is really, really important. All right? Um, let's see. I'm, you know what? I'm going to, I see some other questions here, um, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, we just got a minute or so left rather than, than taking in another question. I'll look at these questions and use them in the beginning of future uh, Q&As or you can join us on this, this next coming up Wednesday and uh, we will go ahead and have an hour-long Q&A Wednesday from 3 to 4 o'clock. Join us early and you can ask your questions and we'll get to your questions. All right? So thank you very much for joining us here. I hope you guys have been blessed as we've spent some time in the Word. Uh, we have a service in two hours. That is at our East Campus. It's live online, 6 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. And we are going to be talking about one thing that can keep you out of heaven or the one of the things that can keep you out of heaven or the main thing. This, one, this thing could keep you out of heaven. 
And Jesus talks about how difficult it is for people that have this in their lives to be saved. And we'll be looking at the rich young ruler in our study today out of the book of Luke. I look forward to seeing you guys there. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his, he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and be gracious unto you. May you draw close to him, know him better than before, and be committed to the study of his word. All right, God bless you guys. We will see